This podcast is supported by an educational grant by Bosch Health, made available through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. We definitely see there's that increased need and demand for dermatologists. One of the main reasons is aging population. We see a higher incidence of skin disease and also skin cancer. But also there's a demand for dermatologists to address not just medical issues, but healthy skin concerns and cosmetic aesthetic requests. That was Dr. Regine Modlarski, our guest today on JCMS Author Interviews. Dr. Modlarski is an assistant professor of medicine and the chief of the section of dermatology at the Cummings School of Medicine at the University of Calgary. She also serves as the chair of the Specialty Committee in Dermatology for the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada, and it's this work that we're going to be speaking to her about today. Dr. Modlarski was tasked by the Royal College to form a group, the Dermatology Working Group, to lead a very comprehensive and objective analysis of the current state of dermatology practice and training patterns in Canada. This work was highlighted in the JCMS first in May of 2019 with the historic review and in May of 2020 with the recommendations. It's this work that we're going to bring alive for you here today on our podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Well, thanks, Regine, for joining me today to discuss these articles. Thank you. We really have two to discuss. Uh, The first uh, was published in May of 2019, the the second in our May-June 2020 issue, both to do with the dermatological training and practice in Canada. First, a historical review, and the second was basically the recommendations that that fell off that, uh, that historical review article. So first off, how did this get going? What, what, What sort of put you in the place where you wanted to do this very intense and very thorough review of our specialty in Canada? Well, thank you for inviting me to talk about um, these uh, important articles. I think that the Royal College recognized that the specialty of dermatology was constantly trying to change to face the medical needs of society, yet we have seen significant changes in dermatology. We're seeing changes in population needs, changes in technology. It's an emergence of novel therapeutics. And so the Royal College, which is basically in charge of defining and regulating uh, the various medical disciplines in Canada, wanted to make sure that we were on track. And they wanted to make sure that we were really meeting the societal needs and the needs of the medical profession. Okay, well, we'll get to the recommendations after we sort of look at the historical bits. And when I look at the historical bits, it was really a snapshot of what Canadian dermatology, dermatologists in particular, look like. I mean, we had a huge, we're an older group. I mean, if one figure two in the 2019 paper shows that that over 70% of the licensed practicing practicing dermatologists in our country are over 45 years of age. Mm-hmm. But and to match that it seems we've increased the resident population two and a half times over the past since 2007. Are we going to be able to serve the population? So I think that was one of the main issues that came up was are we able to adequately serve both the adult and the pediatric population? And so as part of the in-depth review, uh, the Royal College created a task force and it's called the Dermatology Working Group. And the DWG was tasked with leading a comprehensive and objective analysis of the current state of dermatology practice and training patterns in Canada. 
And then the DWG was then supposed to develop some strategic recommendations to, for the Royal College. So they looked at three different areas. Um, they looked at a jurisdictional analysis which compared the programs in Canada to other programs. They looked at a landscape overview and a literature review, kind of trying to understand some of these numbers. So we were able to collect a lot of information on issues such as workforce, population needs, accessibility, wait times. And that hope is then that we can effectively prepare dermatologists through the training programs for uh, the next century. The workforce was really interesting. I mean, if you look at the number of the, the male to female ratio, I was stunned, actually, the, from going from a predominantly male um, subspecialty, if you will, or specialty, uh, to uh, equal male female. I, th I think we've accomplished a lot in a very short period of time. Oh, we sure have. I mean, I think a number of issues came up with regards to workforce. We had identified that we have lots of new referrals, different types of referrals. People have differing practice patterns. Um, we looked at geographical distribution, gender parity, like you mentioned, people who are working more part-time to maintain a work-life balance, and also addressing the retirement issues. So you're absolutely right when you say that there's now become almost a preponderance of women in dermatology. If you look at our trainees, women outnumber the men for, uh, sorry, two to one. And same thing, if you look in 2018 was the first time ever there were more female dermatologists than male dermatologists. We're about equal. So very interesting things that we found from workforce perspective. The one troubling thing about that was also in here, the number of patient visits per year, male versus female. Now, it's the difference is, um, I think you quote here, the mean number of yearly visits per dermatologist decreased so as a whole group mm -hmm. from 6,323 in 2009 to 5,877 in 2014. But there was a, quite a split in, in male-female. Males were 72.65 for uh, the mean number of patient visits in a year, and females were down to 4,181. Mm -hmm. Is... Is that the work-life balance? I mean, um, do we need to, I, I know this is about a training thing, but I, it sounds to me like we need to really petition for more training spots. We absolutely do. And that is one of the major recommendations that comes out at the end. For sure, there's an element of gender parity and work-life balance issues. And we see differences in genders between um, those who are working full-time versus part-time. That's normal, that's natural, um, and that's part of gender equity. But we are seeing these things, and that's one of the main reasons we really need to increase the numbers of graduating dermatologists. Right. So so um, was there anything else in your historic review? There seems to be a, a reasonable across the country there, there weren't too many disproportions i mean we, the west used to have fewer now we're we're picking our numbers up um mm -hmm. quebec seems to still have the largest number the or the, the quote the best ratio for their population there were several issues that came up in the historical overview, including the fact that um, there's definitely an increased need and an increased demand for dermatologists. There's a lot of different reasons for that, but one of the main reasons is 
aging population. With the aging population, we see a higher incidence of skin disease and also skin cancer. But also there's a demand for dermatologists to address not just medical issues, but healthy skin concerns and cosmetic aesthetic um, requests. Mm -hmm. So we definitely see there's that increased need and demand for dermatologists. Accessibility be was you know, quite obviously an issue as well. There's definitely a disconnect between our rural and urban centers. And actually our numbers, um, there's different sources obviously, but anywhere from two to 3% of our dermatologists provide care to geographically isolated areas. And then wait times, probably one of the most staggering items here is that there's an increase in national wait times for dermatologists. And while really we don't know what the standard or appropriate wait time is for a dermatologist, if we go by the Canadian Skin Patient Alliance national benchmark of five weeks, pretty much the majority of provinces are not meeting those wait times. So these are all sorts of things that we need to address. We also identified some areas in education, I think, which were really important. If you look at the literature, historically anywhere from seven to 20% of family practitioners visits are related to skin issues. And yet, when you look at the undergraduate medical education curriculum, an average of 21 hours is provided for dermatology instruction. So there's definitely disconnects at that education level as well. It's striking, in fact. And, and I've been pleading to get more undergraduate education. I This is over 20 years. It's it's not increased. In fact, it's probably decreased in time. Mm -hmm. And my uh, daughter, who's just gone out into family practice, is a pretty good example. She's got a great training, and she can handle you know the cardiology and the nephrology and all those things that are important. Don't get me wrong, mm -hmm. but as far as skin disease is concerned, um, she has a rudimentary knowledge. But it's it's our problem as teachers. And the other thing I was struck by in your historical review is, was the lack of teachers. I, I think that's been a, that's, we, we have to address that. We do. Um, there definitely is a lack of teachers. You bring it up correctly. And in fact, if you look at the postgraduate medical education, so if you look at our residents, we are producing more residents. There's a steady increase in the number of derm residents, but there's not that same parallel in the academic realm. And in fact, one of the main comments that comes up frequently from residents is that they don't have the mentorship, they don't have enough exposure to that environment to necessarily want to go and take an academic position. So I think that there is a there isn't as much academic dermatology happening um, or maybe we're not fostering the same kind of interest in taking academic positions but it's important to remember that not all of the teaching is done in those academic centers in fact I would argue that a large majority of the teaching and the research is done in both community and academic centers oh so, for sure for sure and, and I think that we have we, maybe I put this a different way. We probably have enough teachers because look at our senior workforce. Absolutely, it, it's it's how to engage them, right? And 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 it's it's 
it's a difficult problem and it's probably boils down to money at the end of the day because people out in you know making their own living and and um don't put the emphasis on the teaching that that we we all should and and so that engagement has to be part of the part of the the solution if you will i i would think if they think of a novel way to do that we do and i mean that's something we always struggle with because certainly when it comes to most academic institutions there's not a ton of money i mean generally we're in an era of financial restraint right so the universities don't have a ton of money to throw at educators but i think that we do need to find those ways that'll be critical to engage the community to be more involved with teaching they play such a critical role here okay well you know, I, I hate to think that it all really boils down to money because the, with the amount of work you've done here in, in, in this project, suggests a whole bunch of ways that outside of money we could make a difference. So mm -hmm. if we can reflect back on some of these recommendations um, and the training programs, I, I, this competency by design or competence by design training, it, it's a, it strikes me it's a whole paradigm shift in, um, in the way we're going to teach Mm -hmm. um, are the people coming uh, uh, behind us, if you will. Um, and I, I think engagement might be great here um, and an easy way to do it. You know, have you spent X amount of hours with X person who does Y thing, right? You bet. And I think that um, competence by design will transform the discipline standards and the way we educate our residents. And so dermatology actually just embarked in competence by design. We started the process in December 2019. It's usually 18 months to two years to roll out completely, but it works basically um, by transitioning to build upon and reflect on our strengths and training and then to address any kind of pressures, especially ones that we've outlined in the report. So I think um, this cohort transformation process will be very helpful when we start articulating it using a competence-based model. I think it'll be great. I, I, I think that that to me, thinking this through is, is the key to the engagement. So for example, I see lots of psoriasis and do biologics and phototherapy. And if I take a resident of my practice, it's usually quite a, it's a global thing, right? Yes. Ver versus it'd be nice to bring someone into the practice and have them focused on that area where I, I have some expertise and I can share my learnings. And of course I can be taught at the same time and, and, and understand some of the, 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 um, the basic science or whatever the residents need to know or, or, or just engage with them. So as they become my colleagues, it's an easier transition to keep the teaching model going. So uh, you bet. And I think part of the CBD, um, cohort transformation will involve specifically that a whole, you know, it's, it's not set in stone in terms of timing. It is variable. It's fixed depending on how people meet their, you know, major milestones, but there will be a really critical role for transition to practice. And these are going to be really exceptional opportunities for our residents to get out there and really get some hands-on experience. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Now, now, as you talked about family physicians mm -hmm. and the certi certificate of added competence, right? Um, and 
you know, we do all the, we, we try and do teaching to the family practice audience um, t- because, I mean, my my basic premise is that, that these men and women handle incredibly complex issues. They should be able to handle dermatology um, at, so, at some um, um, moderate skill level, at, at the very least, if not at a yeah. high skill level. Um, yeah. So that, I mean, obviously that takes us to one of the major recommendations in all of this, which is we are dermatologists, we want there to be more dermatologists, but we are also the stewards of our profession, right? So we Mm -hmm. need to help train other specialists and family physicians to have a basic knowledge of dermatology so that they can basically increase their exposure to and proficiency in managing common skin conditions, common skin disorders in that primary healthcare setting or in a specialty healthcare setting. There are a number of specialties from the Royal College, such as pediatrics, rheumatology, you know, internal medicine or ID that see dermatologic cases. And they should be able to handle those basic cases. But what we need to do is we need to, as dermatologists, help them develop the competencies that are required so that they can handle these conditions and that they know when they need to refer to dermatology. And when we do that, we will have had a very direct impact on societal needs. So we need to work not only at the undergraduate medical education level where we're working with the association of um, the Faculty of Medicines of Canada, but we need to work at the Royal College level for Royal College disciplines and with the College of Family Physicians of Canada. So we really need to show them the basics. We have to be more actively involved in teaching our colleagues so they know how to treat the basic conditions. And then once we've done that, you know, we can we can move forward with dermatology, advanced areas of focus competence for our own residents. So it, it's almost like taking the competence by design in the training programs and focusing and creating a similar program in the family practice realm. Right. And the thing is, as I mentioned, as stewards of our profession, I think it's the responsibility of dermatologists to really actively take a role in this. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, the idea and my mantra over my years of practice is you have to take the medicine to the people and unless or otherwise you're of no value. Um, our, our essence is to, to help our patients. You bet. And I th- you mentioned the certificates of added competence and those are, it's a very challenging and it's a, a bit of a contentious issue in dermatology. And part of that is simply because there are all these different certification programs. They have these parallel certification programs that create different training standards. They have different certifications their assessment and evaluative processes are inconsistent. So they're not equal and yet they're indistinguishable to the public. And I think that's one of the concerns that comes up. Of course. So we need framework and um, structure as in all things. And it doesn't have to be complicated. No, no, not at all. It doesn't have to be complicated at all. So you were very, um, and I wrote this in one of my editorials, uh, you were very much ahead of the time when you were suggesting the use of telehealth. (laughs) <laughs> and training in telehealth it 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 clearly um I, the the um the title of my editorial was telehealth goes viral um, yes. <laughs> because it was like an explosion 
yeah. uh, right? And yeah. uh, we've learned a whole bunch. So in in tell me in the in the, in the academic setting in which you're seeing complex patients, mm-hmm. um, has it has it really helped you to manage these folks, or are you still finding you have to to bring them into the into the clinic to be, be assessed? You know what, I think there was a lot of reluctance initially, especially during the COVID pandemic as to how we were going to do it, how you do it efficiently. And, you know, I guess when you think of telehealth, you have to realize it sort of exists in this undefined regulatory space, right? There's no clear regulations with it. There have been no clear training standards with it. Funding all over the country is really quite frankly, all over the map. And so the issue is, how do you implement something like that? And I think that is one of the major recommendations that came up is that in order for us to address the needs of various populations, but especially rural populations, vulnerable populations, where it's not necessarily always easy to come in, we have to be some, we have to be able to provide some other way to support them. And telehealth does come up. Um, so there's a variety of new emerging technologies and virtual health and others that will be required as we move forward. And unfortunately, COVID just catapulted us into using them. Yeah. But it was, you know, it was meant to be. And so the timing is perfect that we now implement this into training. So people have more standards of training in this and we know what we have to do. So Alberta Health Services really got going and in a big way and saw it like a, it's like they 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 threw all kinds of energy at doing this and um, in the Zoom platform and how has that platform worked out reasonably well? I mean, the critical bits are still internet speed, but mm-hmm. is it has it been a decent platform? Because they they have a professional grade or a. In, uh, commercial they grade do. They program. have the health services program. It yeah. works quite well. Obviously, it's not as efficient um, by any means, but I personally have a, you know, I, I see predominantly complex medical dermatology cases, and it's actually worked quite well during the pandemic to see them because not all of the patients always need a complete skin assessment. I mean, if you're dealing with someone who has chronic skin disease and you're monitoring it, you can get a pretty good idea as to what's going on by talking to the patient. The problem with the virtual platforms is that the resolution and the quality of the photos still aren't good enough. So it's very difficult, for instance, if you want to do a skin check or look at Nevi, um, you know, that those are hard to assess in that format. But for more chronic concerns, trying to get an idea, for instance, of someone with psoriasis, how extensive it is or how active their pemphigus is, it's it's suitable. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've done a fair bit of it now. And you're quite right. The, 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 I, I believe that the only reason for the virtual face-to-face is so that you can be sure in this theater of the consultation, if you will, that the individual is understanding you, you can get some body language from them, they can see you, and I think there's a certain amount of trust that goes through eye contact, but you're right, store and forward, where you get pictures sent in is really the only way to assess anything, really, other than general extent of disease. And, um, but monitoring drug therapy seems to have worked quite well. Um, um, so, you know, it's going to be hard to wean people off telehealth um, if uh, if we don't we end up not being paid for it. So. 
Yeah, so I think that is one of the major issues and certainly um, at the Royal College, they can work with other um, with the government and we can lobby as the specialty committee in dermatology, the government to find better formats, but funding at the present time is a major issue with telehealth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, uh, I think it's here to stay. So, yeah. So, so when, yeah. So when you look at this whole package that you put together and you've had months to ruminate over this, um, do you think we're prepared for the next decade? I do. I think we have some challenges ahead, but I think actually we're doing quite well. And one of the things that impressed me the most was at the end of all of this, you know, we did all these analysis and one of the kind of maybe more reassuring ones was our jurisdictional analysis where we looked at dermatology and training in Canada and we compared it to that of other jurisdictions. And we predominantly looked at four jurisdictions like uh, the United States, United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, and we actually found that we were broadly comparable with them. So I feel we're in line with what the rest of the world is doing. I think that's great. We do have some pressure points that we identified, and those are pressure points both in healthcare and in our medical education systems. Um, we talked about some of the pressure points in healthcare being telehealth and how do we address rural and vulnerable population who might have unique health determinants, but um, also in the education realm, like that undergraduate teaching piece we talked about. I do fundamentally believe as we move forward and implement some of our recommendations, we're going to be able to successfully address these issues and prepare our trainees for the next generation. I think they're going to do just fantastic. Um, and we have outlined several measures to address the burden of care that is placed on dermatologists in Canada. And that's going to be a largely collaborative approach where we need to engage stakeholders. And these stakeholders will be other specialists, they'll be educators, they'll be the government. You know, Regine, when I look uh, around the world and, and collaborate on research projects um, and look at the the impact that Canadian dermatologists have in the international scene and in, in virtually all spheres. Uh, I think we should be proud of where we are. And um, thanks to people like you, um, our, our successors, if you will, will be equally well-trained. And if we can engage this fast knowledge base we have and share it uh, so much the the better yeah so oh. thank you very much that was wonderful and um, i really appreciate all the work that you and all of your committee members uh, selflessly um, put forward in trying to sort and figure out where we uh, are and better uh, and more important uh, where we need to go so oh. thank you very well, much it's a pleasure and thank you because i really have to say um it was an honor and a privilege for me to work with the members of the dermatology working group. Many of them were dermatologists and many of them were in private practice. And I can only tell you that we've given thousands of hours of our time pouring through this to develop some key recommendations and key findings. And they are just so invested in doing right by Canadians and by Canadian dermatologists, that um, it truly was an honor and a privilege to work with them. Excellent, it shows in, in your work, in their work, and all of your work. Uh, 
Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Budlarski. Dr. Budlarski is the chair of the Specialty Committee in Dermatology for the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada. In addition to her role as Assistant Professor of Medicine and the Section Chief of Dermatology at the Cummings School of Medicine at the University of Calgary. It's in her role as Specialty Chair that she was asked to gather a task force called the Dermatology Working Group to look at dermatology in Canada as it is today and make recommendations for the future. From our conversation, I'm sure it's evident that Regine and the committee members put in a tremendous amount of work, hundreds of hours, to gather this information and present it to us and to the committee, of course. I wanted to highlight that the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons has accepted the recommendations of the Dermatology Working Group, as outlined in the May-June 2020 article. Specifically, the outreach of dermatology to uh, vulnerable uh, populations and to rural populations. And this is where telehealth is going to be a great advance and one of the things that is better taught in schools and is better utilized by those of us in practice. So it'd be well worthwhile to spend a bit of time with the article and you can do so uh, free of charge over the next three weeks. Uh, So please uh, take this opportunity uh, to do so. So I'm Kirk Barber. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, be good to each other.